Harm reduction is, is what we call it, where we acknowledge that people inevitably face risks, that humans cannot be you know, sealed off from risk that's not compatible with living, and to meet people where they are, and then to arm them with the tools they need to live their lives healthily and safely without an expectation of zero risk. So when we tell everybody in the population that you're at the same risk for HIV, then all of a sudden no one's at risk, right? If we tell everybody that you're at the same risk of COVID, whether you're a nursing home resident or a vaccinated 10-year-old, then all of a sudden no one's at risk. What I mean is we lose, we lose trust when we don't tell people exactly what's happening. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is Dr. Lucy McBride. You just heard her voice, and I'm going to introduce her in a minute. But first, a quick announcement about an event coming up this summer, a real-life in-person event uh, that I'm involved in. On Saturday, July 16th in San Francisco, I will be part of a day-long heterodox healing gathering and mini-conference. What is heterodox healing? Well, it's a way of coming back to sanity and regaining a sense of perspective about the world. Uh, And you can do that by joining me and some amazing thinkers and like-minded or maybe even not so like-minded peers, since this is about heterodoxy, um, who want to challenge the status quo and just kind of cut through the nonsense that you're familiar with as a listener to this podcast. Um, this is a collaborative event between me and Janara Nuremberg of the Neurodiversity Project. She's been a guest on this podcast. Uh, another former guest, Angel Eduardo, who's a writer, musician, and now is also part of FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, is involved, as is um, another FAIR person, Dr. Sheena Mason, who's a philosopher author and president and co-founder of something called Theory of Racelessness, which I need to get her on the show to talk about. Anyway, we're going to be doing this together. We're going to be facilitating talks and teaching workshops. Specifically, I will be teaching a writing workshop on unspeakable topics. And this is going to take place at the Center San Francisco. Tickets are now on sale. And you can learn more about the event and purchase those tickets on Eventbrite. Just go there and type in heterodox healing gathering mini conference and uh, it should come right up. Again, this is July 16th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Attendance is limited. So if you are interested in this, don't don't delay. Um, Okay, Uh, my guest, Dr. Lucy McBride. If your COVID doom scrolling over the past two years has led you to follow any of the so-called dissident doctors who are calling for more clarity and less catastrophizing around public messaging on COVID, uh, you might be familiar with my guest, Dr. Lucy McBride. She's a practicing internist in Washington, D.C., whose email blast to her patients um, around COVID, which she started as the pandemic began, have evolved into a really popular newsletter that has put her center stage in the call for more evidence-based approach to COVID measures. Now, last week's guest, Jennifer Say, talked about speaking out about these issues as a parent. This week, Dr. McBride talks about what she's observed as a physician 
and why she thinks the public has lost perspective on what constitutes normal risk, reasonable assumptions about safety, why the drug ivermectin has been politicized and from there weaponized, and above all, just the importance of prioritizing mental health after two years of chaos. And even though this conversation was recorded just before uh, the nationwide mandate for masking on public transportation was struck down, uh, she does answer a lot of questions that have arisen from that decision. Namely, what does masking do for us at this point and how angry should we get at people who view masking differently than we do? So here's my conversation with Dr. Lucy McBride. Dr. Lucy McBride, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Megan, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you're someone who's been on my list of potential guests for a long time. You're one of a handful of physicians who've been speaking up about messaging and policy around COVID, um, in your case, namely about things like school closures, in-school mask mandates. Um, And I have to say that part of the reason I haven't had you on until now is that in all honesty, I did not feel qualified to have you on. I didn't feel like I had enough of a grasp on these issues to ask you informed questions. And so I kept putting it off. That's so funny. And, and, and I love that when you said that to me on our first phone call, because it's so emblematic of we, what we women do to ourselves, like assume we don't know quite enough to be able to reach out when actually you probably know more than you think. And I'm also not here to like shame or blame anybody, but rather like give you some basic stuff so we can have a good conversation. But thank you for overcoming that. Well, it's the patriarchy's fault that you haven't been on until now. So well, we can, naturally. We can blame them. But yeah, I'm glad you actually, you, you ended up reaching out to me and we had a conversation offline in which we decided that that's maybe the best place to start. Why is it that people like me who actually follow these issues pretty closely, who are glued to the media all day, still have no idea where to begin. That's exactly right. The question is the one that I'm asking myself all day long. How is it that my patients who are super educated in general, informed, and, you know, for better or for the worse, have read my COVID-19 newsletter for two years, still perplexed, confused, and befuddled about what to do when they get sick, which test to get, how long to isolate quarantine, why are their kids miserable and anxious. It's amazing how badly we have messaged basic public health principles and how much the general public is in a state of perpetual anxiety, or at least half the population is, about COVID when we really have, in 2022, extraordinary tools and ways to mitigate risk while living our lives more normally um, than we have been for two years. Okay, so we should say you are not an infectious disease doctor, you're not an epidemiologist, you're a primary care physician, is that right? Yeah, I'm a primary care doctor whose job is to help people you know, um, treat disease and prevent disease, whether it's toenail fungus, depression, dementia, diabetes, or protecting them from the emotional, physical, and, you know, myriad other health effects from from living in a pandemic. And when did you start to become acutely frustrated with the situation? I mean, obviously, everybody's been frustrated for a long time. 
was it when the vaccines really started to roll around that you were saying, okay, well, maybe it's time to take the masks off? Or what was the sort of time frame of your exasperation? Yeah. So just to frame it, you know, in the panic spring of 2020, I, like everybody, was in a cold sweat, right? I mean, I have children. I see patients every day. I have many patients who are elderly, immune compromised, fragile. And, you know, we didn't know what this this thing was, right? Um, but we we soon realized exactly who was at highest risk for poor outcomes. Um, and then, of course, by December 2020, we had these extraordinary vaccines that even now continue to do an excellent job taking away the worst consequences from COVID. So, you know, like, you know, most of my colleagues and and um, other public health experts and professionals I've been working with for two years now, you know, I have a healthy respect for this virus. I've had patients die from COVID. I've had patients get very sick from COVID-19, end up on a, on a ventilator and come off and live. And I've had patients with long COVID. I have patients with long COVID right now. Um, I have probably 15 or 20 patients with COVID right now, BA2. But when we developed these vaccines in 2020, and then they were more widely available in 2021, it became clear that we were fighting this battle and winning. It also became clear in 2021 that this virus is not going away, that a kind of zero COVID posture was going to do more harm than good because, of course, restricting human activity, restricting human contact, you know, isolation in perpetuity or without an endpoint has harm, particularly for, for kids in schools. And we can talk about that later. But when I became frustrated was when I saw the mounting evidence of how very effective the vaccines were and are. And when we saw the mounting evidence of the accumulated harms on you know, nursing home residents to kids in schools on prolonged life in a, in a state of emergency and prolonged restrictions. And the data was starting to mirror what I had already been seeing from day one of the pandemic in my patients, the physical, emotional, and mental health toll of COVID itself. Of course, people have lost family members from COVID-19 itself. People have lost family members, you know, behind the plexiglass barrier in ICUs or on Zoom, you know, worse. People have also, though, lost loved ones not from COVID. They've lost their jobs. They've lost the sense of normalcy. They've lost their fourth grade classroom experience. So all of that I was witnessing in real time in 2020. And then the data was emerging and is still un unfolding now about the mental health toll, the emotional health toll of, of living through a collective trauma. And then we have these vaccines. And so today, Megan, it's just hard for me to watch as, I, as I'm someone rooted in evidence-based medicine. I want to help people respect their natural anxiety and fear of a virus that is potentially lethal or was before they were vaccinated. And also respect that life is full of risk. You cannot stomp out risk and make it zero. We can only manage risk. And that's where we are now. So we're having trouble sort of accepting the grim reality that COVID is here forever and threading the needle of, of, of recognizing that health is about more than the absence of a single respiratory pathogen. Where are we now with respect to messaging? Like, again, this is where I'm just, I, I'm confused because I probably just can't bear to pay attention anymore. Like, what is the CDC saying 
what are different states saying, what are school boards saying, like who decides about school masking policy, who decides about who can go into a restaurant and where, what, at what time. So this is the, you just hit the nail on the head as to what the problem is. And, and, and you, like many people, you know, it's, it's unclear, right? So what we would have hoped for is the CDC to have been this beacon of truth, transparency, and nuanced data sharing during a pandemic. Now, let's just face it, pre-pandemic, you know, that was a tall order for a government organization. And in the middle of a pandemic, when we're building an airplane in the air, you know, that's a tall, that's a tall order. It's a tough job. I don't ascribe ill intent to anyone at the CDC. But the problem was that, you know, because the messaging has been pretty vague, it's been left up to the states as to, you know, and, and then to school boards. So even w- even within the same state, you can have one school board saying mask, you know, in perpetuity or, or mask until some arbitrary deadline and other school districts not masking, right? You've seen a lot of red states never masking um, kids. And then you've seen, you know, more blue states masking kids, even when the in college campuses, for example, were vaccines are mandated and, and they were masked until, and some of them are still masked now. Um, so, you know, it, it basically, and as someone who's worked with schools in the DC area where I live since 2020, you know, it's basically forced schools to being like little mini CDCs and public health departments, which is completely unfair, right? I mean, teachers and school administrators are now supposed to be like, you know, gun patrol educators, you know, teach kids reading, writing, math, arithmetic, and math and arithmetic is the same thing, by the way, um, and be mental health providers and counselors and manage their COVID risk and now be a little bit of a CDC to tell kids when and when not to mask. I mean, no wonder people are wired and tired, exhausted and distrustful. And that's, you know, it's, it's a hard time to be human. It wasn't easy before the pandemic, but I just have so much empathy for people who don't have a front row seat at the pandemic, like I'm lucky enough to have because I've chosen to and because because I have some experience in the world of medicine. Yeah. And again, I don't have numbers in front of me. I don't really know what the point would be if I tried to assemble numbers. Do we know whether like states where the kids were not masked had higher death rates if the kids were indeed bringing the virus home to family members, as was a lot of the, that was a lot of the concern. Like, what do we know about the outcome of these policies? That's a great question. And I was, I actually testified in front of Congress twice in March about these very issues about the mask mandates. So the data are pretty clear that mask mandates don't have a meaningful effect on school transmission of the virus. So let me just make that clear for anybody who's listening, who's like, oh my gosh, she's a child killer. She doesn't care about long COVID. She doesn't care about kids' well-being. I'm simply talking about the data that mandates, which by the way, mask mandates require not just a mask, they require compliance and they can require a fit and filtration with a high quality mask. So it's not surprising that a mandate has a different effect than an actual mask. A mandate means there's human behavior involved. So you can imagine, it makes sense intuitively then to understand that a mandate in a school where kids are inherently imperfect at masking wouldn't actually make much of a difference compared to a school that, that didn't have a mandate. And, and we see that borne out in the data that the schools with mask mandates didn't have meaningfully, significantly lower transmission than schools without mask mandates. Um, and we've seen that also in the data uh, on states. The states that had mandates didn't perform meaningfully better than states that 
that did have mandates. So is that really true? Okay, but wait, hang on a second. So are you actually saying that the people in in Florida and the Ozarks and, you know, the footage that we saw of all of the people at the water park packed in, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if that was in Arkansas or wherever it was, that those actually did not turn out to be super spreader events and that there is there was not a meaningful difference between a red state and a blue state? So, so I love this question because remember that the a super spreader event is not just about masks or not masks. You know, the virus does what it's going to do based on the, the, the complex dance between itself and its host. And the way it spreads is, you know, the way the, the coronavirus loves closed or small, poorly ventilated, tight spaces. In, and, it, and it does the most damage when people are in there who are not immune to the virus from either vaccine, you know, vaccination or from having had infection with coronavirus first in the past. So in other words, the states that didn't have mask mandates, like the more some of the red states, um, had surges in coronavirus, not so much because they didn't have masks, but because they had low vaccination rates and because there are seasonal factors and because there are social factors. Just as there is just as is true in treating an individual, you know, I can recommend to somebody, my diabetic patient that I saw this morning, for example. I could tell her, exercise an hour every single day, never eat sugar, no alcohol, but that's not realistic. She's not going to do that. So we, we instead, we try to figure out a more reasonable, sustainable plan, given that she has a full-time job, she's a single mother, and can't exercise for an hour every day. Similarly, you tell human beings to mask and mandate, you know, it, the compliance and then the fit of the masks themselves aren't always perfect. So it's not, it's not necessarily the masks as, as to why we're having surges. It's because of the nature of the virus itself that's evolving to be more contagious. It's the nature of human behavior to want to gather indoors. And it's the nature of imperfect immunity because the vaccines don't provide imperfect immunity. They're not magic force fields against infection. And that's, those are the dynamics at play. Now, masks can work on an individual if you have someone. So I recommend a mask, for example, for like, I have a patient who had a liver transplant last uh, February, and she is someone who would want to and, and probably should mask in the BA2 surge we're having in DC right now as added protection if she wants to. But, uh, but, th- but, but that's her choice, and, and that can help her if she wears it well and she's under, she understands the risks and the benefits of going to the wedding she wants to go to, for example. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, okay. But what about people who say, well, everything that you just said may be true, but like at the end of the day, how hard is it really to just wear a mask and show respect for, for people like your patient, people who are immunocompromised, there are people with invisible disabilities. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I'm just, you know, there's a lot of smugness. It's not always smug. Sometimes it's coming from a, you know, g- genuine place of concern. But, you know, just like, okay, why is it so hard, guys, for for you to wear a mask? It doesn't, it doesn't kill anybody. I love that question. You're, and you're right. Like wearing, a, if if wearing a mask is the hardest thing you've had to do, then you're a really pretty lucky person. Um, the question to me isn't about whether or not it is worth being kind or respectful of other people, of course it is. And that is how we should be. That is, you know, of course, our job in medicine is to be respectful of people's varying lived experiences and their 
unique vulnerabilities and their unique risk tolerances, which is why we should never shame someone for wearing a mask, even if medically it's not absolutely necessary. My challenge with the mask mandates in April 2022 is that it's it's more rooted in signaling than it is in the actual science of the mask mandates and their efficacy themselves. Does that make sense? So it's not to say you shouldn't mask if you if you want to, and that if you feel better wearing a mask because that signals to the outside world that you care about somebody, then that's fine. It's just know that that is not actually protecting the person who is disabled in the world from from you as much as other things would. What's going to protect, like the way I show my respect to vulnerable people in, in addition to seeing them as patients is to stay home when I'm sick, to take a rapid test if I have a cold to make sure it's not COVID. And well, I'm staying home when I'm sick anyway. I get vaccinated because it does, while it doesn't prevent me from transmitting the virus and not knowing it, it does help reduce the likelihood of transmission. And then, of course, I think there's, there are many other ways to be kind to other people. Like when you're in the grocery store, you speak to the checker and say hello and greet them. And I have this wonderful woman I see in the giant who has awesome hair. And we always talk about her hair. But like, that's how I show respect for other people, listening to other people and being empathetic. If I thought wearing a mask, if I thought, so I have to wear a mask in my office every day because it's still mandated in, in doctor's offices and may, maybe will forever. But if I thought wearing a mask um, in the grocery store was actually going to protect vulnerable people from me, then of course I would wear it. But I mean, I, first of all, I'm getting PCR tested all the time because I have to. I'm not sick. I've had many, many vaccine doses. And so it, it, all it is is a signal. But to the extent that other people still believe that it's respectful, I get that. We just have to, you know, in medicine, we don't do things just to say we, we should, right? I don't prescribe a Z-pack for someone's cold, even though they're asking me for it, because the cold is a virus and the Z-pack treats bacteria. People still ask me for the Z-pack because they want to feel like we're, quote, doing something. But that's not a reason to practice medicine just to say we did, right? Like the book I'd love to write someday is called Just Because We Could doesn't mean we should. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Like I have patients who want me to have them do a mammogram every six months or have a colonoscopy every year or to take a Z-pack antibiotic for something that's a cold. And my job isn't to shame them and say, hey, you kook, you don't need a colonoscopy every year. You've never had colon cancer. You don't have it in your family. And you had a clean colonoscopy last year. It's not evidence-based decision. I'm not going to shame them. I'm just going to explain the data. So again, it's the same thing with masks. It's like, Wear a mask if you want to, but let's manage your expectations of what it is doing for other people and what it's doing for you. And that's new, nuanced. And that's why everybody in this country needs a primary care doctor and why it's a tragic crying shame that 80 million Americans in this country don't. Because who do you trust but your doctor, right? Well, that's a whole, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But I mean, I want to I understand, like with the kids, for instance, because I see a lot of people, so I'm in California, I see a lot of people walking around with their little, little kids in masks. And I'm assuming it's because the kids can't get vaccinated, so they think that they have to do this. What's that about? Yeah. And that is where I just feel so badly. Honestly, I feel really, really sad and bad for my patients and for people across the country who are parents of young kids who have yet to be offered the vaccine. And the reason I feel bad is not so much that they haven't been able to be vaccinated because, but, but that's, I feel bad for that reason also. 
I feel badly because we've scared the pants off of these parents. We have messaged to these parents that the, the virus has as significant effects on children as it does on nursing home residents or older patients. We have not appropriately messaged the variability in risk based on age. There's a logfold increase in risk based on age. That is not to say that you aren't entitled to be anxious if your child is not vaccinated and is living in a Omicron era at all. I have absolute respect for that. It's to say that we need to we need to calibrate our fear if we can, if we have that luxury, to the level of actual risk because the risk of COVID-19 to the average generally healthy kid is not that high. I mean, most children who get COVID have, you know, anything from a cold or a sniffle or nothing to, you know, a flu, a flu-like illness, which of course no one wants to get, but that's that's just the simple fact of it. The kids who are at highest risk for poor outcomes are kids who are obese, diabetic, have underlying neurologic conditions, and those are the kids we need to respect and honor and protect the most. But we've unfortunately messaged it so that we've scared the pants off of parents. We've, when, you know, and then the other thing that's important to realize, Megan, is that right now in April 2022, the majority of children 18 and under in this country have antibodies to the virus, whether it's from vaccination, if they're over five, or they have had Omicron or an infection itself, which does, quote, count. So, but that level of nuance is not being messaged. In fact, six months ago, when I talked about natural immunity, not to steer people away from getting vaccinated, of course, but just the basic biology 101 of, 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 a, of an infection, you know, that was considered misinformation when now it's, you know, as appropriately as it's mainstream that if you had COVID, like if you had Omicron in December, you're probably not going to get Omicron in January because you have protection from having had the infection. Now that's just truth and fact. And the fact that that is at all considered misinformation or is not being shared with patients so that they have to be fearful and mask a kid with no real endpoint in sight is really, really sad to me. And so why has it become the case that nobody is talking about natural immunity? It's like verboten. Because it's, it, well, yeah, six months ago, I mean, I got some really, really, I mean, I get hate mail anyway, but like hate all that stuff, you know, for talking about natural immunity because I was being called a uh, anti-vaxxer when, you know, I was one of the first people different, different to get thing, vaccinated. Different I've been vaccinated, boosted my friends, my kids, all, all my kids are vaccinated, my husband's vaccinated. Like these vaccines are extraordinary. This is like AP bio from high school 101 or not even AP bio that when you have an infection, your body mounts an immune response that then confers some protection against reinfection. It's not perfect, but neither is vaccine protection either. I don't know why it's verboten. I have a lot of different hypotheses. I think, you know, and without getting into politics, like, you know, the the the, the Biden administration was coming off of the heels of the Trump administration that was, you know, overtly spreading some misinformation. I mean, from the president himself talking about bleaching your veins. He lied about getting the vaccine. And so I think, you know, look, I live in Washington, D.C., but I'm not a politician. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a mom. I'm trying to get through the day like everybody else. But this is just my hypothesis that there is this sort of, you know, whiplash against that kind of rhetoric, which was was definitely harmful. But when you don't share the truth and you don't share basic science with people who generally are smart, like the public is smart. And as I said in front of Congress, for 
people to trust the CDC, the CDC needs to trust people. And if we don't trust people with information that's nuanced and that is sometimes not what you want to hear, then then all bets are off. It's like in my job, if I have a patient with a with a with a wicked diagnosis, my job isn't to to catastrophize. It's also not to sugarcoat. It's to tell people straight what's going on and to give them some options and tools to manage reality. And that's what we have not done well. And and is that because just the the initial crisis was so chaotic and confusing? I mean, they were building the airplane while it was in the air. It, it just they people like. Tony Fauci were just unable to convey a nuanced message, like it was too dangerous, or they just didn't know, or they really did have a shortage of masks. So for for medical personnel, so they were saying, don't wear a mask. Like, what was it? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think there's a lot of fear. You know, there's, there's, there. I mean, look, I'll, I don't know. I'm not, in, I'm not in their heads, right? But what we've ended up doing for whatever reason is we've had fear in the driver's seat of the messaging and shame as well, which is, you know, and I, I'd love to talk about those two things when they're, when, when fear and shame are in the driver's seat of an individual patient's narrative about their own health and how, how destructive that is. But if you put that, if you put those two emotions, fear and shame in the driver's seat of public health messaging saying, you know, you call people who haven't had the vaccines, the unvaccinated, you call kids, quote, vectors of disease when the data are clear that kids transmit the virus less than adults. When you shame people for not getting a booster, even though they've already had COVID and two shots, and, you know, tell them like some of these colleges have done that they can't come back to school. I mean, that's shame and fear. And that is really not the role of doctoring. It's not the role of public health. Look, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm not saying I'm God's gift to medicine. Like, you know, have I made a patient feel bad in his or her life or like not following up on an appointment? Absolutely. And I don't ascribe ill intent to any one person or institution or party, actually. I just think that it's time in 2022 to more appropriately message truth, transparency, data, even when it's not what is convenient or politically desirable for whoever's in power. And we let people know what's actually going on. And then in a perfect world that I will be dead before this happens, you know, dispense primary care doctors to every American so they can talk about their depression and their post-traumatic stress from living through a pandemic and get their COVID test in the same visit. I mean, that would be the elderly world. I'd love my kids to live in. But until then, we really have to rely on like the internet and, you know, institutions and TV pundits for, for our medical information. But That's also a, a lot of primary care doctors don't seem to be terribly engaged with for sure. the actual facts. I mean, this I is something stupid that, enough to be on Twitter, right? Like, right. I, I don't know what, I'm like a dog to vomit. Like well, I keep I mean, going back. And I've heard stories of primary care doctors telling patients, well, if you don't get, even though you have natural, you know, even though you had COVID, natural immunity is, is worthless. And if you don't get the vaccine, you are going to be in grave danger. I, I mean, I, and, and this person, is a primary care doctor talking to their patient. So, I mean, you have become part of a, a group of, of physicians. You have a, an organization or a coalition, I don't know what it is called, Urgency of Normal. Can you talk about that and what it's been like to be, I don't know, sometimes you guys are called dissident doctors or, you know, what's, what's, what's your kind of place in all this? You know, I, I'm, I trained at Harvard Medical School. I trained at Johns Hopkins. I had a Fulbright scholarship in Cambridge, England. I'm like a color in the lines, rule follower, firstborn child, 
you know, like the total profile of like the person who, who should be afraid and, and, and like, you know, terrified of speaking out when, when actually, I mean, part of the reason why I've been speaking out more is because my interest in health and medicine has always been the inseparability of mental and physical health. And I've always seen this from the minute we heard about COVID in March, 2020 as a mental health crisis and in parallel with the, the crisis of the virus itself. And mental health, you know, has been so woefully under discussed. And, you know, now it's, it's beyond necessary to talk about mental health. So the reason I've been speaking out is because I feel passionately about doctors who are paying attention, helping people manage more than the mere um, virus at hand, but rather thinking about their health in a broader way, redefining health as the sum total of our lived experiences, our medical vulnerabilities, our actual medical conditions, our you know access to healthcare, our mental health, our physical health, our nutrition, all of that. So I'm dumb enough to be on Twitter, even though like it's not like I'm making any money off of this. I'm not doing this for for fame or fortune or or, or, or money. Like, and I've been accused of you know being a Koch brothers like right wing operative. Oh, I'm like, what does grifter, that even mean? A grifter. Every everybody's yeah. a grifter now. Yes. So the fact that I'm like like have been accused of being like fringy is so like funny almost because it's like, I'm just doing what is the opposite of what most people do. Like there's no financial motivation. There is no political motivation. I'm not planning on running for office. There's no, the, the urgency of normal group is a group of 15 doctors and public health people who got together around the country. We were all parents who saw what I was seeing, which is that kids were subject to the strictest mitigations of any population in the country and faced the lowest risk. And our, our uh, toolkit, which was released at the very end of January, 2022, um, was basically a way of handing school administrators or any decision makers in schools, here's the data on masks in kids, here's the data on mask mandates, here's the data on kids and COVID, here's the data on long COVID, here's the data. And here's our framework with which you might think about making decisions in your school about restrictions, balancing the risk of COVID with the risk of the mitigations themselves, given that bars, clubs, you know, restaurants have been open, given that the data is, is, is murky at best on the, the benefit of mask mandates, and given the kids are suffering from learning loss, from social emotional, uh, the social emotional toll of living in isolation, the school closures um, have been horrible. 1.1 million kids in this country never even like registered for school when they were closed. Um, I mean, the toll on kids and the most disadvantaged kids in this country is enormous and it's only just getting started. You know, a lot of European countries never mask kids. The World Health Organization has never recommended masking kids under the age of six. So we're not even like, the World Health Organization is not anti-science, anti-child. They're more able to recognize that, that kids have broad human needs beyond simply not getting COVID. The World Health Organization has its own problems, but they're sure. in, I mean, in other realms. Sure, I mean, all of it realms. is flawed. Yeah. All of it is flawed. Like, I'm, no, none of us ever came out with urgency of normal, A, saying that the old normal was good for, for a lot of people, B, talking about normal in general. Like, the old normal pre-pandemic was really, really crappy for a lot of people, right, in the most marginalized population. So we're just talking about school mandates. Um, and, and C, no one ever thought we, we never claimed to be better than anybody else or that we knew we just were trying to be transparent and clear and give people information they were starved for. And it's really helped a lot of people. I mean, it's been an enormously rewarding experience, also very eye-opening 
given the political and ideological landscape we live in. Right. So is there the thing where there's like a lot of back channel discussion among physicians and healthcare providers about what the truth is versus what the messaging is? And is there kind of a divide between the, you know, group think doctors versus like you guys? I mean, let's put it this way. When I put out urgency of normal, I can't even tell you how many texts, emails, direct messages from my friends that I trained with at Harvard Medical School and Johns Hopkins and then friends from around the country um, texting me privately saying, thank you so much for saying out loud what we're thinking. Thank you for being brave. I mean, literally, I can't show them because that is the problem, right? Um, I can't prove it to you. So you could you could absolutely not believe me. But thank you for saying what I'm no, not No, I do believe you because I get those emails all the time. But my question is, why can't they say it? Who's preventing it? Like a hospital system? What is it? Well, I think it's individuals. I mean, doctors are notoriously risk averse. I don't want to say they're all risk averse, right? Like, right? Like we all are unique human beings. But you know, doctors like are are notoriously risk averse. Doctors are also notoriously really, really busy in a pandemic. Like they don't have time to look at every study that comes out on COVID, on masks, on the vaccines, on the reduction in transmission, on how many shots, right? Like I had a full-time job pre-COVID. This was layered on. I simply cut my practice in half during the COVID to be able to do more writing and speaking about these issues because I'm passionate about them and because I can, because I'm in private practice. And so I have the luxury that I'm not beholden to an institution. So there's the individual risk tolerance of not wanting to speak out. Like what's it for, what's in for it for people to speak out against the popular narrative? Like what's in for it? Right. What's. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I mean, we were talking about this in our, our earlier conversation, you know, I am like, I, I have to say that I am one of those people who always thought doctors were just like uniformly really smart and, you know, really knew everything and better than everybody else. And then, you know, a lot of, you know, and and my audience knows I've done a lot of episodes about the, the gender movements and youth transition, gender medicine. And one thing that's blown my mind, you know, more recently is realizing that a lot of these doctors that are facilitating transitions, um, are like not critical thinkers at all, like in any way, like they are absolutely sheep going along with social media trends. And they also happen to be surgeons. And that blew my mind. Yeah. You know, doctors are people too. We are flawed. We are imperfect. You know, as I was like, you know, telling my patient this morning, like who was having insomnia and like menopausal stuff. I was telling her to like cut back on wine and don't go to bed with the, your phone in your hand. And meanwhile, like, what do I do every night? Like, <laughs> you know, like it's do as I say, not as I do. My point is we are flawed. We are human and and we are busy and we are usually type A. And if you're part of a big institution that is sort of, you know, a little bit organized around the narrative that we need to protect COVID at all costs, even though it's 2022, then it's it's very easy to imagine why people haven't spoken out. But it's also not surprising to me that I got, like, I still get floods of notes from my colleagues around the country saying, thank you for speaking out. And by the way, our urgency of normal toolkit has been signed by like many thousands of, I don't even, I don't know the exact number, but lots and lots and lots of doctors around the country. And we've, I think we've helped give permission to other doctors to speak out, to say, look, hey, like science and facts are science and facts. And we shouldn't bend the data to fit a political or ideological narrative. 
I think I, I feel exactly the same way you do. Maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I was trained in medicine and it, it, in my, you know, even from high school to like, look at the data yourself and think critically. And I wouldn't do this if it was about like climate change. Like, I'm, I don't know anything about climate change, but this is my lane, right? It's like mental health, physical health, messaging. Like, this is what I do in my day job. So I felt sort of, if you will, an obligation without sounding like a total asshole to, to help people understand. And that's what I've been doing with my newsletter since 2020 is just by accident. I started writing to my patients and the newsletter caught on. It's a COVID-19 newsletter. And it's, it's basically, I mean, this was by necessity to help patients cut through the noise and to understand what's actually happening. And now it's reaching almost 18,000 people a week. And it's got, it's unbiased. I mean, I'm sure there's bias because I'm a human being, but it's, 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 there's no agenda to it. It's free. It's here's the information about what you need to know this week. Here's some ways to cope with the mental health crisis of living in a state of emergency for two years. Here's my stupid little anecdote about me and my dog and my kid. You know, it's like, it's like, I'm just trying to communicate with humility and truth. And if you don't want to subscribe, fine, it's, it's free. I think there's, there's, there's individual risk tolerance as to why doctors haven't spoken out. And I think it's, it's easier not to. And then I think you see how people like me or, or, or people with a much bigger platform, like my friend, Monica Gandhi, or, you know, Tracy Hogue, or, you know, other physicians are being treated for speaking truth that's often against the narrative at the moment. And you see the repercussions. And so why would you risk that? Like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Because it's not good for my mental health to be be called no names. it's 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 not good it's not good for our mental health but what's even worse for our, our mental health is knowing that we should be speaking but we're not so that's that's the way i was raised that's my personality if i was sitting back on my and sitting on my hands i would i would i would i would be in a constant I, it would be torture for me we're gonna pause here for a short message from me Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. 
And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. To this narrative, and that is a word that is overused and very amorphous at this point. But you know, I, I you know, I, I'm looking at a New Republic story about um, about urgency of normal. So I'm looking at this story, and it's doing a lot of gymnastics to try to uh, show how you guys are like a bunch of truthers and to- totally out of step. And and really, they're kind of just. I, I guess the argument is that your your data on the mental health effects is shaky because they can't actually say anything about the the sort of transmission rates and what we know about that. So so what they've resorted to is saying that you've got the mental health piece all wrong. Mental health data. Absolutely. And I'd love to speak to that for a second. So when we initially put out the toolkit, we had a, si- a slide on suicide rates. And we got the data off. I can't even remember how, by how much. I mean, obviously it was unintentional and we corrected it immediately, transparently and corrected it. That misstep, which was again, honest mistake and corrected immediately has been used against us beyond what I think is, is, is beyond my imagination. So what we're being, what we've been accused of is weaponizing the mental health toll on kids as a way to take masks off people to then do harm to kids through COVID-19 broad infection. Okay. So the, the, the entire premise of that argument is, is, is flawed because we're not saying that the mental health toll on kids is a direct cause of masks. I mean, that would be completely denying the, the, the broad array of challenges that people are facing in a pandemic, right? There are some kids who are depressed, anxious, disordered eating, substance abusing, and and just socially isolated and lonely because their grandmother died from COVID or their grandmother and their aunt died from COVID or because they're being bullied online because they're on Zoom school and it's all screens or because they, you know, had a predisposition towards anorexia and they don't have enough food or so the 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 data on mental health which we which we put out in January because that's all we had in January doesn't begin to capture the unmeasurable mental health toll that is only slowly now starting to play out and will play out over generations so the argument that they had against us in the first place was flawed because there's no way there's no PCR test for social isolation depression anxiety self-harm right like those are hard to measure and that is our very point in the first place. That is actually why we're doing this urgency of normal movement is to say that just because mental health is harder to measure doesn't mean mental health shouldn't count in the decision-making rubric about mandates in schools for kids who are low risk. We never said that the mental health toll is purely about masks. We never said that mental health could be captured in a suicide data rate. If we considered suicide the only measure of mental health gone bad, that would discredit all of the kids who are alive who are suffering in a way that is unmeasurable. So that premise was always flawed. 
And it's tragic to me that people who are in the mental health field are using that argument against us because that that's the exact narrative to use an overused word that that actually is dismissive of mental health that that gives us this artificial dichotomy between mental and physical health. You don't have to be a suicide victim to have a mental health challenge. It's just harder to quantify. I also want to ask you about therapies, treatments for COVID. Okay, so something like ivermectin. You know, I I was reading, I think we also talked about this in our earlier conversation. I was reading an article in the New Yorker from last fall about long COVID and, you know, the potential that it was maybe um, in some cases psychosomatic, not in all, but it was a pretty controversial article that was, you know, I think, you know, sort of reviled by the same people who are criticizing urgency of normal. But even within this kind of um, dissident piece of reporting, Ivermectin was casually referred to as horse dewormer. And I was I was really struck by that because my understanding is that it is a horse dewormer when used uh, in a veterinary context, but there is also a human version. So can you explain if it has any use and why this has become so such a weapon? Ivermectin is literally like a like a nuclear small nuclear device at this point. Well, yeah, I mean it is a word that is now like natural immunity or long covid. These words are being weaponized and being used and abused to further these false dichotomies we have between medicines that that work for X disease and don't work for X, this, Y disease. The long COVID issue, which is, which is real and is, is manifest in patients, and I have patients with long COVID. I also have patients with long sequelae from other respiratory viruses. I have patients who have all the symptoms of long COVID but never had COVID, and their, their symptoms are really from grief and depression. Um, and, and, the, the, yes. And so, but so the word long COVID can mean lots of different things. I think what we're learning is that there is definitely a physiological component to it. I mean, there's, you know, there's a great article. Um, I mean, there are many great articles about it, but it's, you know, we think maybe it's because of the prolonged inflammatory reaction in the body. Maybe for some people, it's that the virus never is fully cleared. Um, for some people, it triggers autoantibodies. So, Megan, my point is whether it's with ivermectin or the word natural immunity or the word long COVID, instead of instead of us acknowledging that there is a continuum for any medical intervention and any medical condition, there are mental health components, there are physical health components. Instead of cutting those into two and putting them on the opposite sides of a culture war, why don't we actually decide that most medical conditions and most medicines have myriad purposes? The utility and the, the depends on the person we're talking to, and instead of creating culture wars, why don't we do a little more listening, a little more respecting of each other and our unique, you know, psychological and medical vulnerabilities, and let's be a little more curious instead of a little more instead of, instead of so shamey when we talk about medicine. I mean, it's just bananas. You know what I mean? Well, does ivermectin have any use at all? Sorry, yes, it does. Absolutely. But I wouldn't use it for COVID, but I wouldn't, but I also don't shame people who call me and say, can you call me an ivermectin? I just say, Hey, I really don't think that's a good idea. Here's how, here's what I would do. And but what would you not do? A horse do- oh, so well, but it's like, not, okay. Say- actually like, hang on, but let's be very clear. 
it's not a horse dewormer. Is it a different compound, the human version of ivermectin versus the veterinary version? I mean, it's a similar compound. It's just, and so the, when they use the word horse dewormer, it's, it's automatically labeling it as a hoo-ha tool when actually it does have utility in humans, just not for COVID. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, okay. So like, what is life like for you just as a, as a person in the world? I mean, you're walking around, I'm sure, I'm sure your friends are nice liberal people who went to elite educational institutions and, um, and wear masks. And, uh, do you get into arguments with them? Are you, have you, um, become, you know, are, are you now considered a sort of suspicious character? No, 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 no. I will say that I do find, I, I do find that a lot of my friends who are at these institutions up and down the East Coast are less likely to speak out and are more likely to message me privately and say, thank you for saying what I've been thinking. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's, 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 it's been easy. I mean, I, I have been counseling some of the schools here in DC and for the first time, you know, I'm like, uh, I'm like an outlier. Do you know what I mean? In some of the recommendations I have, like Omicron is surging right now in DC and I, I, there's just no way I think we should bring mask mandates back in schools. I mean, if we want to start policing kids' behaviors outside of school, that would make more sense, which I don't think we should do either than policing kids' behaviors in school. Um, I think kids should be able to wear a mask if they want to. The kids who are immune compromised may want to, but the kids who are immune compromised should be the very kids who get vaccinated, boosted, and have access even to Ebusheld, which is the therapeutic. Are you finding that some kids really do want to wear the mask because they've become so accustomed to it? It's almost scary not to have it on. Sure. Yeah. My son, my middle child, who's a senior in high school, he was a little anxious about taking it off because he didn't want to seem like he was being disrespectful to his teachers. And I totally get that. Like kindness first, always. But I reminded him that, you know, if the teachers have been vaccinated and boosted and which they're mandated to do at his school and, you know, that, that it's not up to him to protect an immunocompromised or even immunocompetent teacher. So it just, you know, it's like, I try to teach my kids about kindness and respect, but also, you know, respecting yourself as well. And and it's always a balance. And that's, that's, that's sort of the holy grail of humanity, right? It's like respecting ourselves and other people in tandem. Where is he getting the idea that this would be hurting the teacher? Are the teachers like virtue signaling with their own masks or are they, what's, Again, yeah. the, 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 the narrative has been, you know, be afraid of kids. They're germy, you know, viral vectors and this sort of unfortunate narrative that, that schools are somehow intrinsically unsafe when, you know, I mean, I have many teachers as patients and they're not walled up at home on the weekends and on their vacations. They're living their lives like everybody else. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing about school that's intrinsically unsafe, except if you live in a, you know, it, it, except for some of these schools that are poorly ventilated and in 2020 or 2021 had really low vaccination rates, right? Like that was, but now that we've, we're in the Omicron era where vaccines are widely available and more than half the population has antibodies from past infection, I mean, we need to get those ventilation systems upgraded for sure. But we also can't wait for that to happen to allow kids some semblance of normalcy, given that they have broad human needs beyond just not getting COVID. Lizzie, how much of this do you think has to do with Trump? 
I, I, I hate to bring him up, but if, if he had just, if we had had um, any other president, uh, Republican or Democrat in office, and there had been a sort of normal-ish process of information conveyance, would this entire picture be different? You know, it's so hard to say. Like, my instinct is to say yes. You know, my instinct is to say yes, that it would be different. Because here we had a president who was telling people to put bleach in their veins or suggesting it, telling people the vaccine was unsafe. Well, and saying he wouldn't wear a mask because, you know, the, the w- w- wearing a mask, you were just kind of like a pussy. And so, of course, then it becomes politicized. If you wore a mask, it was to show that you hated Trump. And if you didn't, it was to show that you were MAGA. Right. It became it became about virtue and not about actual public health right away. Um, again, which is not to say masks can't work or sh- don't work on an individual and someone should wear them if they want to. But I think that my reflex is to say yes. But I also think, you know, Trumpism, you know, he came out of, uh, you know, a lot of I mean, he his presidency was born out of a lot of distress and despair in this country that wasn't being addressed. Um, just like we have a lot of misery and inequities in this country on both sides of the political spectrum that are not being addressed. And then you you put social media in the middle of a pandemic where all of a sudden everyone's an expert, everybody has a platform, everybody has a platform and a megaphone. And you've got people taking advantage of this vacuum of trust, right? Because when you have a vacuum of trust, when the CDC is like for better or for worse, like, or I should say this, let me start over. When the CDC is having a hard time messaging nuance and people are losing trust, that's when the real snake oil salesmen take advantage, right? Not me and my urgency of normal crew, although you can call me a misinformationist all you want. Like, that's when the real snake oil salesmen, that's, their, that's, when, that's where they get their mojo. That's where, that's, where, that's where that happens. And so the reason urgency of normal existed is to combat all that misinformation and fear-based, shame-based messaging to help get people the truth, given that there's an, this vacuum of trust. So I think it's the internet, which sounds like, you know, you sound like an old fuddy-duddy saying that, but it's it's like social media, widespread misinformation, and Trumpism, and political standoffishness, and polarization. And then, you know, science, bam, it's politicized, it's polarized. And now we're at war with each other um, over mask mandates and and ivermectin and the human immune system, which is nothing political about the human immune system. Like last I checked, it doesn't vote blue or red, right? So it's just, a, it's just tragic. It's really tragic. It, it makes me so sad and worried for our kids at the risk of sounding again like an old lady. I just, I don't know what the solution is except to talk to people one at a time, like we're talking now, to be calm and rational and follow facts and to care for my patients the way I know how and to then help a few other people along the way if they, if they want to listen. If they don't, that's fine too. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that the human immune system is not inherently political. Of course it's not, but I'm remembering back during the AIDS crisis, the way the public messaging took shape and Anthony Fauci was hugely behind that. I think you and I are around the same age. I mean, I I remember being 
you know, in college and in my early 20s. And the messaging was, um, you know, HIV does not discriminate. It doesn't matter if you are a, you know, a, a male homosexual IV drug user or a nice suburban teenager fooling around with your boyfriend. Uh, we're, we're all vulnerable. And that was that was coming from a place of trying to scare heterosexuals into caring about an issue that was affecting gay population. You know, there are, there were reasons that that was the messaging, um, but it really just quickly became, or eventually anyway, became a kind of vehicle of style. And if you were like constantly talking about condom use, the way people talk about masking now in, in a lot of ways, it was to show that you were not homophobic or that you hated Ronald Reagan or whatever it was. But the result was that um, a lot of people had were completely misled about the scope of the threat of HIV transmission. I mean, people really did not get it. And it's talk about scaring the, the pants, scared the pants on a lot of people. You know, it was like people would not take their pants off. So, you know, and I, it's I, I'm very struck by the similarities. Obviously, the, the scope is different, but some of the players are the same people. They are. And it's interesting. It's so interesting you bring that up because like my friend Monica Gandhi, who's, who's, who's research and, and expertise is in, she's an infectious disease doctor at UCSF and she's, she runs one of the biggest HIV clinics in San Francisco, at San Francisco General. You know, the same principles that we should have applied better to the HIV epidemic, we should have used for COVID, which are basic principles of fundamental, of, of basic, these are basic public health principles. Harm reduction is 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 what we call it, where we acknowledge that people inevitably face risks, that humans cannot be, you know, sealed off from risk that's not compatible with living, and to meet people where they are, and then to arm them with the tools they need to live their lives healthily and safely without an expectation of zero risk. So when we tell everybody in the population that you're at the same risk for HIV, then all of a sudden no one's at risk, right? If we tell everybody that you're at the same risk of COVID, whether you're a nursing home resident or a vaccinated 10-year-old, then all of a sudden, no one's at risk. What I mean is we lose, we lose trust when we don't tell people exactly what's happening. And, and COVID does discriminate. Like, yes, you're right. The immune system isn't political, but COVID does affect marginalized populations, black and brown communities and Latin communities more than, and, and people who are in urban centers, who are in multi-generational houses, housing, more than it affects suburban white people. That's just true. It's not because of the immune system, it's because of, the, it's because of human dynamics and structural racism and all the problems we have that, 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 that have, of course, exacerbated over the last two years. My point is that those are realities that we need to look at closely and not sugarcoat and not act like we're all at the same risk. Let's acknowledge the horrors that predated the, the pandemic and solve for those as we solve for the actual virus at hand with vaccinations, ventilation, and vigilance to protect their most vulnerable. I mean, it's not usually exclusive. Like we set up this like either or, you know, dichotomy when, when we can, we, we can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> well, as as I, I asked that question many times, can we? I, I'm not I'm not sure about that anymore. But it's yeah, we're we're losing that. I think we we're losing that ability as a as a species. But I I, I want to actually make make 
sure I get you to answer this really clearly, because I think a lot of people are still confused about kids dying from COVID. Because every time there is a death of a child from COVID, it makes the news pretty much. Are there comorbidities in almost every case? Um, So if you look at the studies from Germany, there are almost zero deaths in kids who were immune competent and didn't have comorbidities, which again is not to dismiss kids with comorbidities. It's to respect and honor those kids and to surge resources and protections to those kids. Yes, the majority of kids who have tragically died from COVID um, are kids who have had immune compromised situations, who are obese, who have diabetes, who have underlying health conditions that that warrant added protection and, and then warrant not scaring the general population to think that we're all at the same risk. So we're speaking on a podcast. As I've often said, there are not enough podcasts in the world. So um, I'm ha- I was happy to hear that you are entering the fray. The, the, the more of us, the better. <laughs> yes, I'm actually launching a podcast. I'm super excited. It's called Beyond the Prescription. It's going to be free. It is basically about broadening our definition of health. I'm going to be interviewing people maybe you, I hope. I'm interviewing people who are at the peak of their success, however you want to define that, who have not gotten there because they went to the right schools or ate the right cereal, but because they have grappled with their mental and physical health in tandem and they have overcome struggle. And the goal of the podcast is to, to, to show the listeners how I talk to patients and how I conceptualize health is more than the sum total of your cholesterol and your weight on the scale, uh, but rather your everyday lived experiences and the kind of journey, if you will, of gathering the toolkit you need to, 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 to deal with everyday risks, whether it's relationship risks, health risks. We talk a lot about younger people being risk averse in a way that older generations maybe are not. And it may be because they just, I, I, I often think like every single bad thing that happens, we just, we hear about it. Like we see about, we see it on social media. Like there have always been terrible things happening all the time all around us. But like when you and I were kids, it, it, unless it was in the newspaper or on the nightly news, we, we probably didn't know about it. So I, I is, the, is this something that you're, you're grappling with on, on the show? Just sort of like people's, you know, you've got like the whole concept of risk and the the, the prominence of risk in your mind or your psyche, your life at any given time. I mean, it might be very different for like us than for somebody who's 18 years old right now. Exactly. The podcast goal is to, is to kind of pull back the curtain on what it's like to be human when you're really honest with yourself and to pull back the curtain on what it's like to be talking with a physician who values health and well-being in a very evidence-based way. So for example, I'm interviewing a professional athlete who, you know, by all accounts looks like, you know, he has it all together, right? But who has struggled with physical health and mental health issues to get to where he is because of childhood trauma. Talking to somebody who has it was a victim of childhood abuse whose who's lessons learned and tools gained from that experience are the reason she's healthy mentally and physically now, not just because she ate kale and quinoa and like did the keto diet. Humans, so first of all, we do dumb stuff to ourselves every single day, including myself. 
right? Like we do. We, we, what do you do decision. that's dumb? You, that's, oh, like I love bourbon. I stay up too late on the internet. But it's normal for humans to, to gravitate to self-soothing behaviors, whether it's internet shopping or bourbon or having an affair, right? Like that's what people do when they're in pain. Um, the question is, are you looking at your mental health and connecting the dots between your habits and your health? Or are you just drinking and in denial about it? And that's, that's again, that's, that's sort of what my job is about. But my point is that humans face risk. Humans don't always make decisions and have behaviors that are rooted in like the evidence of what is good for you. Right. Um, and so that's, what's interesting about, about health and humanity is how messy it is and how messy our world is. And, and, and my job is not to tell people what to do is to arm them with the tools they need to get through the day. And I try to do the same thing for myself and I'm not always great at it. I try to teach my kids that stuff, but I'm not always great at that either. I mean, I'm a pretty good parent, but you know, I'm a work in progress like everybody. Well, okay. Speaking of messy, here's my last question for you. So I, I take uh, like an exercise class, like a, like a bar class, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not going to a bar. You stand at a bar. It's, it's much harder than it looks. Anyway, I take one of these indoor exercise classes. They were shut down for a while. They opened back up people wearing masks. Um, Now the, now you don't have to wear a mask. I'd say about half the people do. So we now, we have to wipe down our equipment after every class. Equipment being like um, a mat, like a mat that's actually, that's essentially made out of fabric or a ball, a rubber ball, um, the ballet bar itself. So I've been taking these classes for years and um, we never, the, the wiping down element, I don't think that was going on. Um, at least not to this extent. So we, we finished the class and then, you know, everybody goes and they get their their wipe from the plastic container. And then we go, go through this big ritual of wiping down like literally carpet in front of us. <laughs> like, and, and I'm thinking like, oh, here we go. I, I'm showing, I hate Trump. I hate Trump. You hate Trump. We all hate Trump. Here we're going to, we're, I'm, I'm wiping down my bar. Let's all show. Okay. I'm so happy that everybody here hates Trump. And now we're uh, on our way. Yeah. It's a bit of, it's a bit of theater. It's a bit of theater, but it makes people feel good, right? Like it makes people feel good. It makes, I mean, and I was going to say, okay, on the other hand, we're not just wiping down COVID germs. Somebody here could have a cold. They could have the beginnings of a flu. Like maybe this is just a healthier practice by definition and we should just get over it. And, and this is how we should be from now on. Yeah. It's not COVID that you're wiping down because COVID doesn't really live on surfaces or trans is not transmitted by surfaces. Even though oh, that's right. Which we all, we, which we've known for a long time. Since, that's right. Of yeah. Course. Yes. Right. So it, it, that, that is, it's not COVID, but, but you're wiping it down for the ritual of it to, 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 so that, you know, when you get on the mat, that someone wiped it down for you. It's, it's probably more theater than anything else. Is it killing MRSA, which is a staph bacteria that can live on those mats and cause like abscesses? Sure. But I think what you're touching on is this sort of theater that we do to like make ourselves feel better. It's like, it's like one of the chapters in the book I want to write just because we can't doesn't mean we should. The thing about the wiping down the mask though, is there's no like harm. I mean, obviously there's environmental harm because you're using all those wipes. I think it's kind of gross actually. Also, I think you're you're putting a lot of chemicals into uh, carpet fibers. Totally. So there's that. Um, But does the benefit outweigh the harms? Who the heck knows? Are you saving lives by not giving people like MRSA abscesses on their shins from the mats? Maybe, 
But as with any medical intervention, whether it's wiping down a mat in a bar class or masking kids in school in perpetuity, the harms need to be need to be less than the benefits. You have to have benefits more than the harms, and you have to have evidence to, particularly for a mandate. But if you want to wear a mask in perpetuity, even if it's not doing much for you, that is fine. If you want to feel good doing that, that is fine. If it's actually helping you because you wear it well and you need to because you're immune compromised, that is great. But we don't need to mandate things that don't aren't rooted in data. Okay. So Does that make sense? Yeah. I should just and I just just to be clear, I don't want people to get mad at me. I have no problem wiping down the mat. I just no, and I, I, have I think about this mask. every time. Right. And I don't have a problem. Like I wear a mask at work every day because I'm mandated to. I, I really don't mind. I actually don't at all. It's to me, it's about it's about the critical thinking and the the pulling the wool over the public's eyes is what makes me cringe. Some anxiety is normal. That's how we, you know, run from the flood. It's how we study for our exams, right? That's that's normal. Is that when anxiety is unbridled and 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 is has taken on a life of its own and it's out of proportion to the data, meaning the data on mask wearing or the data in your own mind about like, hey, this boy thinks I'm a loser, therefore I'm not going to call him and I'm anxious about it. If that data isn't there, the boy actually doesn't think you're a loser, you're making that up, then you shouldn't be afraid. If the data isn't there to show that you should wear a mask in perpetuity, then you don't need to wear a mask. What is my point? I'm trying to make the point that fear can take hold of our own brains as individuals and make us do things we wouldn't normally do. Similarly, it can take hold of a public health policy and a whole messaging system and do harm more broadly. Um, and fear is useful, but it's it shouldn't be in the driver's seat of public policy or in anyone's internal narrative about their behaviors because that just makes people afraid. Right. And actually, I promise this really is my last question. If we just keep getting vaccinated, I don't know, every year, like, is this ever going to go away? What? No, COVID's here forever. I mean, COVID is going to be woven to the fabric of our everyday lives. It already is. Um, we will have waves just like we have waves of the flu. Um, you know, I don't know how often we'll need to be boosted with a new vaccine formulation. That will really depend on how things play out. Um, but right now, the vaccines continue to do, to do an excellent job at, at preventing the worst outcomes from, from this variant. And we just have to wait and see. But you know, we have four other coronaviruses that we live with. We, we have lived with for, for a long time. And this is going to be the fifth endemic coronavirus. And as long as you've been vaccinated, boosted if you're eligible, and you know the ways to minimize your own risk, you know, being in well-ventilated spaces, getting a test if you're sick, staying home when you're sick, um, you know, masking if you need to or want to, if you're high risk, you know, then it's about broadening out and thinking about the other health harms, like your risk for breast cancer, your risk for diabetes, your risk for social isolation, your risk of not doing things that then, you know, hamper your ability to live because at the end of the day, health is about, you know, my job is about helping people not die. It's also help help up. It's my job is about helping people live longer, but also live better. And that includes, you know, social interactions and, and, and not being anxious about everything that comes our way. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Lissy McBride, thank you for coming on. And I'm glad I finally got over my fears of sounding clueless. And You're not clueless. You, you are so savvy. You could freaking run the CDC, my friend. Yeah, well, who, who couldn't? Let's let's face it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Megan, thank you for having me. You're just such a delight. And um, I can't wait to have you on my podcast. I, I, I can't wait either. And congratulations on the podcast. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. You as well. Mm-hmm. 
That was my conversation with Dr. Lucy McBride. She's a practicing internist in Washington, D.C., and the author of the very popular COVID-19 newsletter, which you can find at lucymcbride.com. Her new podcast, Beyond the Prescription, debuts this week, May 3rd, and you can find it by going to her website as well. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you probably know the drill by now. You can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and join at any number of levels um, and get various perks. Join our growing community. Um, if you're not into Patreon, you can go to the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com and make a donation in any amount. Um, again, the heterodox healing gathering and mini conference I mentioned earlier will be taking place on July 16th in San Francisco. And you can find out about it and get tickets at Eventbrite. Just go there and type those words in. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.